Welcome to episode two of the History of Metal Blade podcast, brought to you by Vinyl Me Please and Revolver Magazine. I'm your host, Jay Bennett, and today we're taking it back to 1985 for two key Metal Blade releases. First, we'll talk with Kenny Powell, the founder and guitarist of LA trad metal enthusiasts, Omen, to get the story behind their second album, Warning of Danger. In the second half of the show, We'll speak with former Fate's Warning vocalist John Arch about the writing and recording of their second album, The Spectre Within. But first, let's catch up with Omen founder Kenny Powell as he talks about his departure from the band Savage Grace and his decision to form a band of his own. What happened? Why did he decide to leave Savage Grace? Well, you know, like uh, primarily, I, I, I was, you know, I'm, I'm a songwriter. You know, that, that's probably, I probably based my songwriting more. Than, you know, I'm proud of it more than my guitar playing. And Savage Grace deal was, I, I was going to get a couple of, to write a couple of songs for the record, and we're close to starting to record. And uh, I was told that my songs, the two songs I'd written, were not going to make it. So I, I gave Brian a call, you know, talked to him, and he, he said, "Well, those are my two favorite Savage Grace songs. I don't know, those are my songs." And, so we just kind of we kind of put a deal together. I, I had uh, the, the original Omen drummer and and Jody, who turned out to be the bass player, was originally going to be a rhythm guitar player, already kind of in the bag, and we were just waiting to find a bass player and a, and a decent singer. And so, you know, Brian said, "Sure, man, you got a deal." So, so I just took it from there, and, and we found JD and uh, switched Jody to bass, and I guess the rest is history, as they say, huh? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, beyond the fact that you you wanted to write your own songs. Um... What was the initial plan for Omen? I mean, was there anything else that you wanted to do differently than Savage Grace? So taking uh, uh, Jody and Steve, we moved from Oklahoma, the dusty, you know, dust bowl of Oklahoma, and it was, it was the intention of, you know, putting a band together, and we had several songs written, some of them which turned out to be, uh, you know, songs on Battlecry, not to, not the exact versions, but most of the rest, and... But we just we were we were having trouble finding you know the right members, and then I got the offer to join Savage Grace, and I thought, well, it's a good way to to, to get my foot in the door in the industry in LA because I was not from there, you know. But but the the intention all along was was to do something. I don't you know we didn't have the name Omen until uh, until actually I, we were probably halfway through recording the record. Who who came up with the name? Uh, Brian Slagel. Brian Slagel did. Yeah, okay, we, cool. Yeah, we 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 were. Uh, we were bouncing back and forth, and we'd made the list and, and, you know, voted them down, voted them down, voted them down, and nothing was really sticking, and he called me one day, and he said, hey, how about Omen? So, now, on, on drums, you, you had uh, you had Steve Wittig, who was also uh, a Savage Grace refugee, like yourself. How did you know he was your guy for, for Omen? Well, uh, Steve was, uh, Steve, uh, see, I had played with Steve in, in, like, cover bands, you know, hard rock bands in Oklahoma, uh, you know, for, for a few years, and then... And, and, he, he was the first one who ventured to L.A., and he ended up you know, being in, in Savage Grace for a while. And then he came back to Oklahoma pretty much almost uh, sight unseen. I, I uh, sold off my business and my house and uh, packed myself in a trailer and went to L.A. <laughs> and then you know, on vocals, of course, you got J.D. Kimball, who uh, a phenomenal singer. Uh, how did you find him? You know, that's the funny thing, because uh, Steve was looking for something to do while, you know, fulfilling my commitments to Savage Grace. And he ended up in, 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 uh, playing drums for uh, J.D. had a band called hammer damage and uh, but they'd never really done anything at all and you know when i told him i said well you know i'm, I'm going to leave savage grace so we're going to go ahead with our own thing uh he goes well you need to come and hear this singer and uh, 
they were just in a garage. But they, you know, uh, I, I, it didn't take about, you know, 30 seconds. I went, okay, stop. You're the guy, you know. Phenomenal singers are not that easy to find. Yeah. Especially somebody that has their own unique sound, you know. Okay, so you put, you get the band together, and then um, you've got a, a track, Torture Me, comes out on the uh, Metal Massacre 5 compilation in uh, 1984. Do you remember how, how the Omen track was received at the time? I think it got, you know, it definitely started the buzz for the Battle Cry record. Were you playing shows before you did the Battle Cry album, or not yet? No, I played, I know I, I played one of those Savage Grace shows, and uh, Omen didn't play a show until uh, the Battle Cry record was done. Okay. Okay. All right. So let's so let's go to the uh, the Battle Cry record then. What what was kind of your approach with this record? You had the band together. You, obviously, you want to you want to make an impact. You want to set yourself apart from Savage Grace. So what what was kind of the philosophy here going into make Battle Cry? You, you know, it really was the philosophy uh, and, and a lot of the song ideas that we messed with. You know, before we before we moved to LA, I was just like, okay, now I just want to do what it is we were set out to do. You know, and really, really the big. Key was finding the singer. I, I, I can go through old cassette tapes and find the ideas that, that ended up on on Battle Cry, and not not you know the same arrangement, but but a lot of the riffs. So you know the, the, you know the things were already set in motion, and that's how we wanted to sound. Now you and JD both wrote lyrics for for the Battle Cry record, right? Right, right. You know, I, I, well, when I was in Savage Grace, the deal was if you brought a song in. You had to bring in the lyrics also and the melody. And, uh, you know, I, I was not really used to writing lyrics, but I, I'd written Battle Cry and Die by the Blade. You know, they were pretty much done songs. And uh, pretty much after that, there was just some, I had some input in the lyrics, but, you know, mostly I, it, was, it was JD. Yeah. So I know, I mean, that Battle Cry record, I mean, obviously there's like a sort of swords and sorcery theme going on there, like almost a Conan the Barbarian kind of a thing. Is that is that what you guys well, have in mind? I think everybody in the band, for sure, me, me and J.D. were, were into Conan, Conan the Barbarian, you know, and I just fight for the right kind of thing. I think it was a really a conscious effort to be, you know, the swords and sorcery thing. It's just, that's how it turned out. And, you know, I, I, I have no regrets about it, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, and so I mean, the the Battle Cry record today is is seems uh, like a highly regarded record. People really like it. Was, was that the case at the, at the time? I believe, if I'm not mistaken, when it came out, it, it was the, the biggest uh, selling Battle uh, record, you know, and it, and it sold really well the first few weeks, you know, and and it's it's insane how it, you know it's still like sixteen year old kids come up to me like, oh, Battle Cry is so badass, and, you know, for all, all the first three records that, that they they withstood the test of time and they you know they stood apart enough to uh, to last and wanted just some kind of pop shit that, uh, that, that burn out when the phase burn out. So that record comes out in 84, Battle Cry comes out in 84, and then you guys start playing shows. So what do you remember about the first Omen show? I believe the first Omen show was at the Troubadour, you know, and it was a Battle Cry release uh, thing, and uh, as far as I can remember, it, it was pretty, you know, it was pretty cool. You know, there was all the hair metal poser things going on at that time. Not really sure that Omen was really an L.A. band, and we really ended up playing a lot more in Texas and Northern California and Washington and things like that. We caught on in Texas uh, way more than we did on the West Coast, and so we, we, we would do, you know, three or four Texas cities, and, uh, you know, at least into the upper Midwest, but not, not any, like, really bonafide long tour. Going into the Warning of Danger album, uh, which comes out in 85, how, did you have? Did you guys have a plan about how you wanted to approach the 
the second record differently than the first one? We wanted to be a little more uh, precise with our playing and, uh, you know, a little more concise with the songwriting. And uh, so, you know, we were just trying to progress to be a little bit more polished. Well, do you remember anything about the, the writing process for that record? You know, it went real quick, went real quick and uh, it's, it's, it's bizarre because now it takes me two years to write a record and we were just cranking one out a few months. But, you know, we, we were just, we rehearsed a lot. And we, we had a rehearsal room and we actually shared with uh, Lizzie Board. We would go in three or four nights a week and, you know, I, I would bring riffs and uh, we'd work this music out and, uh, and give J.D. a tape and he'd take it home and come back usually with something really killer in it. So, you know, that's, that's kind of how we... Thomas always kind of written like music first, music finished, and then and then bring the lyrics in. And that, you know that's difficult for some people, but JD never really had a problem with it. You know, he, he would put things that I go, well, I didn't know if vocals would even sit over that. You know, and he would find a way to to make it sound really cool. But but that's generally the writing process was you know pretty much live rehearsals and just bring in a riff and start pounding it out. Lizzie Borden was, from what I'm told, quite a character back then. What, did you have any sort of uh, run-ins or experiences with him sharing a space? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if there were run-ins. I mean, we shared the same sound guy. We shared the same rehearsal room. Uh, we we did some some touring together. Uh, not not always to, uh, to 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 Lizzie's liking because you know we were a little bit wilder then, and he would come to me like, "Okay, man, you, you're a bad influence on my guys." You know. You, you got to settle down. Go, go, go take my guys out with you after this. <laughs> okay, man. <laughs> but yeah, he was quite a good character. I mean, you know, they were a really great band. I, I always, uh, you know, had, had you know, respect for. Yeah, I, I really enjoy those Lizzie Borden records too from that from that era. So, all right, so what do you remember about recording the Warning of Danger album? I know you had Brian Slagle was in the studio with you guys. But, but what do you remember about the process? The big part of the process to me was getting to you know to work with Bill and, and opening him up, you know, and, and and he would always get what real close to what I wanted to sound like, and uh, it got to the point where me and Bill worked together so well, he just raised his eyebrow and I go, okay, I'm gonna take it again. Or sometimes he would say, that's good enough. I go, well, there's a squeak in there. He goes, that gives a character. It's good enough. Move on. So I learned a lot of things from him, uh, but just you know, locking down into working with Bill and and not being like kind of pushed aside. Here's what we're gonna do. Bill always worked hard to, uh, to try to get across what you know we wanted to do. There's a great Iron Maiden-esque instrumental on the Warning of Danger album. It's called VBP. Uh, what what does that stand for? <laughs> okay, so you know the title was 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 a joke, right? It was back in the day, you know, in the 80s, in the sexy, funny days. And so, we, you know, we just figured we were just going to give a, a, a title as the WVP thing. And uh, we were playing some shows and we had a little kind of fan contest, figure out what it, what it means and you'll get a prize, you know? And uh, so one girl just got into it and just spent months and she called me every day, does it mean this, does it mean that? And uh, finally, you know, she comes with this, she goes, I don't know what it means. I go, what does it mean? She goes, it means vibrating butt plug. And that's what it meant. What it meant. But it was just, it was a joke title, you know? And it turned out to be pretty pretty damn funny. So the Warning of Danger comes out in uh, in 85. Did you guys do any touring on this record? It's, it's you know, the, the same things, you know, spurt tours, uh, uh, John up the West Coast, you know, Johnson, Texas. What, what's your theory on why Omen caught on in Texas? It, it had anything to do with the Oklahoma connection? No, 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 because nobody knew I was from Oklahoma. I don't know who was away. It was a lot to the, the, the Hispanic crowd, you know, and they they really caught on to it. And 
you know, amazingly enough, last year, you know, we played down in Houston, and it was just like the big Hispanic crowd. It was like the 80s when we would come down here and people would be camped out waiting to get into the show. You know, I guess something we did, maybe, maybe it's, you know, it's the scales, I'm not sure. You know, a lot of the sort of, I guess, traditional metal albums from that era, from the mid-80s or the early 80s, they don't hold up very well today, but Warning of Danger really does. It holds up well. Yeah, it's, it's, it's still an awesome it, record today. Yeah. Do you have a theory about that? When we were doing the record, we thought, you know, it was, it was the big progression. It was our step to, to go really big, you know, and, and we really put a lot of work into making it. I think that's why it still holds up. I think we were kind of disappointed that it wasn't bigger when it came out. But, you know, now I know, you know, born into danger in South America, they, they just fucking go crazy. You know, I had no idea that we even had a fall in South America until, you know, the last 10 or 15 years. And, this original lineup of Omen only lasted a couple more years, uh, another record and an EP, um, and then you, you parted ways with J.D. Kimball. What, what happened? Uh, you know, stuff that I, that I really hate to talk about, and it was just some things got out of control, and uh, I think he sometimes had a problem of when it was getting bigger and bigger, kind of one success, but then they kind of fear the pressure of success. It, you know, some things happened, and it really uh, it got into trouble at a, at a show in San Antonio, and it was thrown in jail and stuff. And I thought, you know, let him sulk there for a day or two, and he'll figure out what's going on. And uh, we never talked again after that. And I really, really regret that to this day. You know, uh, I mean, you know, we were we we wrote very well together. We we had our you know we butted heads sometimes, but uh, something when his personality kind of shorted out during that when we started getting you know bigger and bigger and. Uh, and I don't, I don't really know what it was, but kind of got out of control. And I don't, I don't want to say a bad thing about the man, you know. Uh, I regret that, that, uh, you know, that that was never worked out at the time because you know, it's never, you know, never been the same since he was gone. But he just kind of disappeared off the face of the earth. And actually, when he was passing, uh, I had been searching for him for a couple of years, trying to find him, you know. And I, I but I couldn't find him anywhere. And uh, his brother contacted me. Uh, I guess the day after he passed and said, you know, he wanted you to know that he's following you and that he's doing the most proud period of his life as an omen. And I've been, you know, desperately searching for him to try to do something together again. So that, that really sad scenario. Oh man, that's awful. That's awful. Yeah. You know, it just haunts me to this day, you know, because, you know, if we, if we could have got to Europe on those records and, you know, I mean, he's worshiped there, there's God there. And I, just don't think he always felt like he was appreciated enough here. He was really a unique singer. I mean, back then and even today, there's no one that sounds like he did. No, no. You know, no, he, I mean, he, the, the kid I have now is from uh, the Greek island, Crete. You know, he grew up listening to J.D. And he, he's the closest thing that I found that that's, you know, and that captures anything like it. I, you know, I've spent good 20 years trying to find somebody, you know, Half that good. All right, so let's let's end on a positive note here, man. What? Uh, let's do that. I mean, what what do you what do you think is your favorite song on Warning of Danger, and why? You know, if we're in Greece, we're in uh, Brazil, uh, and we play Warning of Danger, uh, it's just instant chaos. People climbing over the monitors and uh, you know singing singing along, you know, louder than the band. It's probably is Warning. I think it's probably. You know, it has the most impact when we play live. You know, we've always played Termination, you know, even when we weren't playing Warning or Danger for a, for a good period of time. Uh, but, but it's, you know, when you get there, the people who really got into the record and, it, it, you know, just hit those first couple of chords there, 
and, and, and it was just it's insanity. You know, I, I, we were in Greece and we went we didn't want to danger some some kid climbed up on the monitors. They, they collapsed and he fell into the concrete floor and I saw him at the end of the show with stitches in his head and he goes, man, we're in danger, you know, this killer. <laughs> I, I'm like, you know, you're all right. <laughs> I don't want somebody to be killed. But, you know, I, I mean, it, just, it creates that kind of chaos with, with people, you know, and that was a good, uh, you know, cross between musically how, how I write and, 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 and J.D. was just, you know, the music is very chaotic and he smooths it all out. It was, it was a perfect, you know, it's a perfect combo. I think it's probably, you know, Ruby Eyes Eyes goes over really, really great. Uh, determination too. But I, I think Warning is, is probably the one that, that really stirs the emotions. Well, I guess there's there's a reason it's the opening track, right? Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> Kenny, thank you so much for your time, man. I really appreciate it. No, no, no problem. It's, it's really nice to talk to you. It's been a pretty long time talk to my bandmates, you know, but we can't really get together. My singers in Crete, uh, we're in the middle of writing a new record. We can't get face to face because we can't travel. So yeah, I, I, I was looking forward to it. Just to get out of the, out of the box of the, of the recording studio and, and talk to someone. Yeah, me too, man. I, I, um, I, I, um, I appreciate it, man. It's a, it's a, it's great speaking with you. I mean, what a, what a great record. And I'm so, I'm so happy that, uh, Brian decided to include this one in the, uh, in the box. You know, and I want to just tell you something for just go, you know, I, my, my local little liquor store, which I visit too often these days, since I'm not seen to do. <laughs> and and there's like a 22 year old kid in there. I had the, um, I have somebody from Italy made me an Owen face mask, you know, and I had it on and he asked about it. I said, well, it's my band, you know, and stuff. He goes, well, yeah. YouTube and stuff. I said, yeah, you know, go look it up. And I go back and he goes, Warning of Danger, how did you get that guitar sound? How did you get that? And it's a 22 year old kid right now, like three days ago, asked me about Warning of Danger. <laughs> so, you know, it's it stood the test of time, that's for sure. That is awesome. I love that story. That's, that is fantastic. All right, brother. Have cool. a good one, man. Thanks, man. You too. And now we go from Warning of Danger to Fate's Warning. Let's go across the country to Connecticut and catch up with former Fate's Warning vocalist John Arch as he talks about the trials and tribulations of the band's second album, The Spectre Within. set the scene here a little. The Spectre Within is Fate's Warning's second album. It came out in 85. Uh, the first record, Night on Brocken, uh, came out in 84. I know from a conversation with that I had with Brian Slagle that Night on Brocken was actually a demo that was released as an album. So in a way, The Spectre Within is kind of like the first proper, I guess you could say, Spectre, uh, uh, Fate's Warning album. Is that how it feels? Is that how that feels to you? Yeah. Spot on. Yeah. I, I remember the day that we were rehearsing and Jim said, you know, we really should start, you know, writing originals instead of playing clubs and just uh, doing cover tunes. The unnerving feeling like, oh, wow, writing originals. This is something that was new for all of us, really. 
So that was pretty much the beginning. The performances on this record are really marvelous. Uh, and as you mentioned, the, the, the challenging nature of the material comes through. D did you feel like as a vocalist that you were really pushing yourself performance-wise on this record? Uh, yeah, I always feel like I'm pushing myself. The majority of it was challenging. Even like the opening track, you know, Traveler in Time, a lot of time signature changes, a lot of shifting and a lot going on there. So it challenges, a, a, a you know, a vocalist and a lyric, you know, when you're writing the lyrics and you're phrasing, it, it is challenging to make it fit and actually sound cohesive. But songs like Orphan Gypsy and, and songs like Epitaph, I just think Jim's writing kind of, um, and it still happens today, you know, when Jim and I work together, um, it's his writing that actually brings out um, the emotion in me, which is the impetus for my writing. I, I do, I work on my emotions, you know, during the uh, early, early years, you know, I got a lot of comparisons uh, to maybe Bruce Dickinson or whatever. And yeah, I do, I mean, I emulated him at that point uh, in time, and I still think he's a genius business-wise and a musician. Um, but those comparisons, they were still being made, but not as much, you know? I think I was uh, vocally maybe trying to find my voice at that point, too. We were all exploring uh, our, our, you know, our inner workings. You know, we didn't know. I didn't know if I could write music. You know, we actually immersed ourselves in it. Vocally, it's always challenging for me. And this, this is no exception. You know, I was actually working my voice out like I never have before. And it felt good. It felt good to kind of push the envelope. You mentioned the Iron Maiden comparisons. Uh, and I know that there was a lot of that going around at the time with Fate's Warning in the in the mid '80s. Did that feel like something that you guys wanted to kind of push beyond and and leave in the past? Did you kind of want to ditch that comparison? I mean, obviously Iron Maiden is a great band, but you kind of don't want to be viewed as like a, a clone or something, right? Yeah, you kind of you want to make your way, but you want to have your own unique sound. At that time, we we all had like very similar uh, influences in music. You know, we all loved Uriah Heep. We all loved um, Maiden and Priest and, and even, you know, more obscure bands like Angel Witch and on and on. I mean, the list goes on and on. Sometimes, you know, subconsciously, whether we even realize it or not, yeah, we had some of that dun -dun 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 the horse trollop, you know, going on. It's like, wait a minute, you know, we got to we got to start. This is sounding too much like, you know, somebody, somebody else. So Brian Slagle pointed out to me that Fate's Warning was actually the first Metal Blade band that was not from California. And I know that uh, you guys actually drove from your home in Hartford, Connecticut, to Los Angeles to record The Spectre Within. What, what, do you remember that experience at all? What was that like? You're all in the van with your gear? What? What? I never thought of that until you just mentioned it. And all of a sudden, boom, it was like a light bulb went on. I had always remembered after Awakening Guardian, we had to draw straws to drive the Ryder rental truck back to from California to Connecticut. And I was one of the unlucky ones that pulled one of the short straws with the roadie. So I remember that drive back to Connecticut was torturous, but I do remember that. And for the first time, actually, you know, heading towards into California and just seeing, seeing the mountains and, and uh, you know, and then driving to uh, Huntington Beach. And we were just like, you know, a bunch of kids on vacation. We couldn't wait to go explore. Um, so this, the, the Spectre Within was recorded at uh, El Dorado Studios in Burbank. And I never um, would remember that if you didn't mention that. Do, do you remember being there and recording the album? I do remember bits and pieces of it. Um, and the reason I do is be, uh, because uh, I don't know who was in the band that was just taking pictures with the old Kodak thing, but there was a lot of pictures taken. I think it may be with Steve Zimmerman. Zimmerman. He was good like that. 
and I, um, we have these pictures laying around. So um, it sparks my memory of being in the studio. I have one picture of myself actually behind the microphone um, in the studio, uh, you know, recording one of the songs that somebody, somebody took. And I remember uh, we, we just looked so young, you know, as obviously time flies, um, but you just forget, you know, we're all just a bunch of little punks, man, really, when you think about it. Brian Slagle was the producer on this record. Was this the first time, this is the first time you guys had worked with a producer, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. And that's what I'm trying to remember. Uh, I can't remember too much about, like, who was sitting behind the board at that point. Um, I, I remember just little bits and pieces about being there and going to the beach and laying around and then, you know, getting back into the studio and how fast uh, we recorded that. And I, I, I remember one instance, it was um, um, Slayer, the guys from Slayer just happened to be walking down the sidewalk and they're like, um, they had been in the studio and we didn't even realize it. So um, I don't know if it was Kerry King, um, I forget the bass player's name, but um, he just said, dude, man, how long you, you've been in there for how long singing? And I had been singing for like 12 hours or 13 hours straight because everything's on a budget. And so he's like, and I remember him saying, uh, I can't go more than three hours, man. I can't believe you guys have been at it that long, you know, but we just laughed. The record comes out in October of 85, I believe. Do you remember, uh, did you guys read reviews at the time? Uh, did you kind of, you, did you get a sense of what the reception was when the album came out? My memory serves me correctly. Of course, social media not being what it is today. And I don't even know how you know, it existed back then. We really, the only way we would ever see um, anything was we'd go to the local record store because they had what, Kerrang! and Metal Hammer, all the, uh, the metal magazines. And, uh, you know, maybe Brian would call us and say, hey, look, at, we're going to do some press. You know, we do some phone interviews and he said, we'll check this issue. You know, um, uh, you're going to be in, this, in, in, the, in that issue. So that's really the only way that back then we would be able to see something and to get a feel for, you know, the response. Yeah, no, that's great. So the, the year after The Spectre Within comes out, one of the songs is featured on the soundtrack to one of my favorite films of all time, River's Edge. Slayers on the soundtrack, Hallow's Eve, Agent Orange, and we have a Fate's Warning song, which I'm going to mispronounce right now. Kyrie Ellison, is that right, Claude? Kyrie Ellison. Wrong, but that's I actually went and you have that little speaker you push on it. That's I got a Carrier Alea song. <laughs> First of all, tell us what inspired this song. Oh boy, what did inspire this song? I, I can't tell you exactly what it is, but I, I was raised Catholic and I, and I was uh, always went to Catholic schools and I had old school nuns with whacking your knuckles the whole the whole nine yards. My, my whole youth revolved around that. So, and I always, I was always fascinated with, with all of it and, and sitting in the church and looking up at the cross and um, 
just totally zoning out, not hearing anything anybody's saying at the sermon or whatever, but I would just, my imagination would, would run wild. Um, my mother loved to do seances. I guess and I, that was kind of against the Catholic religion, but she did them anyway. She had seances, you know, welcoming spirits into the house. So um, it was kind of, a, we lived across the street from the cemetery growing up. I was around all this kind of morbid stuff quite, quite often in, in the afterworld and this and that. So um, I, I just think that a lot of that is probably a lot of that influence you know, in reading certain things and uh, being told certain things and being brought up a certain way. Really, I couldn't even remember the lyrics right now if I tried, and, and I would really have to study the lyrics, and it may uh, it may bring back the impetus for those lyrics. I don't know, but I, I have to go back to uh, my upbringing um, and the, the the quickness of that song, the, the, the power behind it. I like performing it live. It was always a, a kick-ass song to play live. People would, you know, just a lot of power and a lot of speed and a lot of words, obvious. Um, I don't know how I fit them all in there, but uh, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. That's what it means. It's in Latin. Um, so I think I may have even seen, you know, I used to do a lot of reading and skimming through these really big, fat, old encyclopedias and just uh, reading about the history of wars throughout civilization, stuff like that. And I may have just come across that, that, Phrase, Kyrie eleison. I'm like, that really rolls off your tongue. What does it mean? And then I looked it up and it's like, hey, you know, fate's warning, you know, uh, here comes the mortality <laughs> again theme. Because I was always fascinated. I think we are all fascinated with death and, and, and life. I, I think those are a few of the things that may have birthed Kyrie eleison. So it ends up on the soundtrack for this movie, which ends up being sort of a cult hit. Uh, and there's a video made for the song, which has clips from the movie in it. Did you notice that? I mean, did you guys get much of a boost out of this, like in terms of uh, recognition or anything? Because you're on this sound. I realize this movie wasn't a, exactly a blockbuster at the time. I've seen it. And it's cool. And now I'm going to have to watch it again. I think to answer your question at the time, we were excited about it. It's like, wow, movie soundtrack. You know, we didn't expect anything like that. So they asked our permission. I said, of course, you know, do it up. Um, and it was cool to watch a movie and to hear that in the background. Uh, you know, those guitars, unmistakable, you know? Um, so it was exciting. Um, I don't know uh, how much of a boost, but I can tell you to this day, people talk about, they still remember, they say, oh, that movie, River's Edge, has, you know, Carrie Eliason on it. Did you know that? And I go, yeah, I'm aware of it. But the thing is, is people still, you know, here it is 35 years later, and people still remember that. So I think it was cool for the fans as well. You know, look at here's a, you know, metal always getting a bad rap, you know, we're always trying to fight our way up, you know, hard to reach any any kind of charts. But when something good happens, you know, for a band like this um, uh, and any other metal band, the fans like it because it, it kind of gives us a little bit of validation for our hard work, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I, I highly recommend you uh, watch the movie again. It's, uh, I mean, it's been my favorite since I was a, a, a kid. I love it. Okay, so uh, in closing here, what is your favorite song on The Spectre Within and, and why? Kind of a tie between uh, The Apparition and, and Epitaph, but I'm going to say Epitaph because I just love the way the song flows, and I think it's some of Jim's best work, and, and that's my opinion, um, as far as, you know, it's, it's not a short song. It's, it's more, uh, more long, longer dramatic theatrical song 
And I like every part of it. Um, and I say that because even playing it live, people love that song. You know, it's it's like a, it's what I thought was uh, Fate's Warning was all about, especially in the earlier years. I, I that's right up my alley. I really like that kind of music. Um, it's a it's a journey. And Fate's Warning is to me has always been a, a, about a journey. Um, yeah, it may have a mystical feel to it, but our whole goal was with the music and the lyrics and uh, the vocal lines and everything put together. Our goal was to take a journey and hope the listener would take a journey with us and leave this planet for a while and all the hardships behind and, and, and all the things that we face on, in our daily lives, which can be really difficult. And um, I never realized uh, until later in life, unfortunately, how important that, that music is, not just Fate's Warning, but music in, in general. Uh, maybe we get a little bit jaded, uh, people that are in music and do music, maybe we get tired and, and we stop appreciate, appreciating it. But I'll tell you, man, one thing I learned with the fans, um, how important music really is to them. And they've expressed uh, life-changing things um, for music and actually saved a couple of people that told me that they, it's, it's really pulled them out of something really awful, out of darkness. And uh, because they realize that when we share our inner workings with them, they're not alone, you know? And, um, and I think Epitaph does that for me. It's kind, of a, it's kind of a grim sounding song at times, you know, or maybe the message and all, but I'm a firm believer at looking at everything in life, every aspect and uh, facing it, facing your fears. And I think we're all, all much better for it in the long run and it does make us stronger. Well, if that makes any sense, Epitaph, the movements, the song as a whole, love to love to play that song live, and it moves me emotionally. So, to me, that's my line. Is when it really moves me emotionally. I like it, whether it be from Hates Warning or any other band, any other music too. If it moves you and it resonates with you, you know, and this one does. John, thank you so much for your time, man. I really appreciate it. Anytime, and I hope I answered your questions without wandering too far off subject no it was great it was great i think i think you passed with flying colors awesome, awesome. <laughs> I'm, glad I could, I'm glad i could do it i wasn't expecting any interviews at this point with no album coming out or nothing in the works but uh refreshing it's cool i, I appreciate it thank you in our next episode we'll drop into 1991 for two more pivotal metal blade releases america must be destroyed by the costume maniacs and guar and butchered at birth the second album from Death Metal Masters, Cannibal Corpse. These two albums don't have much in common musically, but as we'll find out, they are both victims of heavy-handed censorship campaigns, one of which lingers to this very day. Until then, I'm your host, Jay Bennett, and this is the History of Metal Blade podcast from Final Me Please and Revolver Magazine.